You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. Welcome to Fireside Chats with Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. The year, 1933. The place, United States of America. The president, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Welcome to Fireside Chats with Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. From a historical perspective, Fireside Chats was a series of evening radio addresses by Franklin D. Roosevelt between 1933 and 1944. He spoke about numerous topics, including the Great Depression, the Emergency Banking Act, the 1936 recession, and World War II. But what we're doing here today is once a month, Michael and I are going to cover and investigate and dissect popular news articles that cover oncological situations, discussions, opinion pieces, and things that you can use in your daily practice that patients or even Whoopi Goldberg might ask you when you wander down the street. Welcome to Fireside Chats with Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Yes, and full credit for this must go to Josh. This is his idea. We talk a lot about the data, the raw numbers, how professionals look at oncology as a field, because that's that's who we are, that's what we know. We we look at oncology through the lens of a doctor. But as doctors, the beautiful thing about our profession is that we are ultimately treating people. We're not treating algorithms. And these people, our patients, will come with their own preconceptions, their own prejudices, their own thoughts. And many of these thoughts are expressed in common media, in print, in videos. And thinking and discussing and having lively debates about the merits of a lot of these commonly held conceptions, myths or otherwise, is a very important part of the doctor-patient interaction. So today we're going to talk about a New York Times opinion piece published on August 30th in 2023 by doctors Laura Esserman and Scott Egener. Josh, take it away. Michael, I was so enjoying your tidbits on life that I didn't want you to stop, but I'm happy to take it away. Welcome to Fireside Jazz. No, we're not starting again. <laughs> uh, I'm just messing with you, Michael. The title of this article is not everything we call cancer should be called cancer. The outline of this article is that cancer is a life-changing and terrifying diagnosis. It's a heterogeneous group of diseases that vary from exceptionally low risk to exceptionally high risk. Originally dating back to the ancient Egyptians and more recently Hippocrates from 460 to 370 before Common Era, who is very much considered the father of medicine. He coined the term carcinos and carcinoma, to describe non-healing forming tumours. Hippocrates, along with his neighbour, Galen and others, noted similarities of crabs 
to other tumours with swollen veins. It was introduced to the English language and modern lexicon around 1600, common era. The definition of cancer today is a malignant tumour of potential unlimited growth that expands locally by invasion and systemically by metastases. Which is why the cancer constellation is that of a crab. Exactly, Michael. But what is the issue here? Given that different cancer subtypes harbour a variety of risks to the individual, should all cancer and potentially all cancer-related associated diagnoses be grouped into one? The risk of this, as labelled by the authors, is that it can lead to unnecessary treatment, disfigurement, side effects, psychological relationship and financial issues. What is the impact to the individual and the psychological impact on them and their family? The proposal of this article is that the medical community must reconsider what we define as cancer in its earliest manifestations. Cancer today is diagnosed very differently from two and a half thousand years ago. Today, we have at our disposal an arsenal of tests and investigations that while clear up many of the questions our predecessors had, add a number of other questions that are much harder to answer. We use blood tests, biopsies, tumor samples, and a plethora of imaging modalities ranging from CTs, bone scans, PET scans, Dota tape scans, you get the idea. And I can't forget MRI. MRI we use a fair bit as well. And of course, when we look at, well, it's not our course, but when we look at where we're heading as an oncological specialty, diagnosis will likely come from liquid biopsies, CT DNA assessments, and even further advanced imaging techniques, which raises questions with a potential outcome being over-diagnosis. On top of over-diagnosis, are we over-treating? Are we giving an unfair name to certain disease types, which are actually very low risk? That, I think, is the preface of this article. And then they go into examples. Now, Michael, I don't want to be the hog of this microphone as much as I love the sound of my own voice when we edit these, but did you want to talk us through the two kind of examples that they've discussed in this article today? Yeah, I think the examples that um, the authors use in this article are two prime examples of cancer that is not really cancer. I know that I've used the term and we've used the term on this podcast, sort of precancerous lesions to discuss ductal carcinoma in situ of the breast, as well as low-grade prostate cancer, that's prostate cancer with a Gleason score of six or less, which is defined as cancer group one. And these are two examples that the authors use to put forward the point that with cancer or precancerous lesions becoming diagnosed more readily with our methods of diagnosis becoming more advanced, are we doing the right thing by our patients to treat these effectively like they are cancers? So both 
uh, low-grade prostate cancer and DCIS are usually treated with either surgery or radiotherapy. We know that any surgery um, has potential complications. Radiotherapy, particularly of the prostate, has significant complications or the potential for significant complications. And so the these two examples are used to uh, put forward the point that potentially there is scope for treatment de-escalation and personalization of the treatment of these precancerous lesions and potentially saving patients the risk of surgery or radiotherapy. I spoke to a neurosurgeon a little while back who said that the best surgery is no surgery, and I think that a lot of people would agree with that. But Josh, we here on Fireside Chats do like to go a little bit deeper behind the scenes of the article. And the authors mention a couple of studies in the article to justify their opinion. And, you know, we're not saying that we're right and they're wrong. This is more just a, a lively debate, as it were. But what what is the actual evidence that uh, could potentially inform support or go against this uh, this idea of active surveillance and treatment de-escalation? Michael, it's a really good question. And I know we're going to try and keep these shorts, which we, which I always struggle at, but I have two potential questions for you. Ductal carcinoma in situ, which is one of the examples you gave, you know, the Australian Institute of Health actually states that between 40 and 70% of DCIS lesions may progress to invasive cancer at some point, if less untreated, although the evidence is uncertain. How do you marry a statistic like this with surveillance? Well, I guess the main, this is one of the main questions, you know, talking about active surveillance is all well and good, but the the follow-up question to that really is how, how do we active how do we actually do active surveillance? Now, in the DCIS space, you're talking about at very least mammograms, but we know that mammograms are not 100%. So a lot of patients will actually require MRIs to detect uh, changes in the behavior and the uh, physical appearance of these lesions. Now, from a individual perspective, that might be brilliant. That might also be something that is even more traumatic than something like surgery because a lot of people find MRIs very confronting. A lot of women find mammograms very uncomfortable. So the impact on the patient of active surveillance is not necessarily zero. The risk to their health is very low, but the uh, impact psychologically can be significant. And also none of these tests are free. So MRIs are still incredibly expensive and the demand for MRIs uh, across other medical specialties, across the neurological and neurosurgical specialty, the orthopedic specialty, uh, the um, gastro and hepatology specialty, these are all other specialty specialists that are, I don't want to say competing, but requiring the use of MRIs. And there is only a finite number of MRIs, finite access to MRIs. And so, this is a big argument, and recently it was a big part of the question about uh, a low-dose CT screening program that has been proposed here for Australia for the uh, for the 
early detection of lung cancer uh, as a population screening uh, program, which is the cost of these programs is huge and that money has to come from somewhere. And so, yes, de-escalation and personalization of treatment are both fantastic concepts. And Josh, you and I have, you, you and I have uh, sung the virtues of treatment de-escalation and treatment personalization many times on this podcast. But I guess the question that has to follow up practically is how, otherwise a lot of these things are purely aspirational pie in the sky sort of things. Yeah. And I think one of the studies they were talking about, which hasn't read out just yet is the wisdom study. Now, the wisdom study, I think it's in America, but essentially it's creating a personalized breast cancer screening approach. That is screening more often, depending on the patient's risk and age and using other modalities, like Michael so eloquently stated, MRIs. Now, it was active surveillance as a summary. In one one of the examples they gave was prostate cancer. It's an early prostate cancer, so it's something Michael or I would probably never see in our clinic because it would go to the urologist and then they would have all their treatment and it rarely metastasizes. We as medical oncologists get to deal with the sad stories and prostate cancer is a nice story because even if they have metastatic disease, they're likely to live for many, many years. But the big question here is can you give active surveillance and what is the long-term outcome of this? And so there was a prospective study in rolling enrolling for about 15 years from Sweden. I believe it started in 1995, Mikey. And they either had semi-annual PSAs and digital rectal exams. Now, I don't know about you, Mikey, but I don't think DREs are potentially that great at diagnosing cancer unless they're quite big and you stick your finger up and all that you can see feel is a mass. Well, I think they're also very operator dependent. I know that there are some very experienced urologists who can pretty much diagnose prostate cancer with the tip of their finger, but not everyone has that sort of clinical experience, particularly with the uh, explosion of imaging modalities and, um, you know, surgical investigations for diagnoses. You know, we're moving away from clinical diagnoses of these things because a lot of things are missed when you're relying on the tip of someone's finger. And isn't that such a double-edged sword? You're de-skilling the people that, you know, would be able to diagnose this. And the issue with large surveillance tools such as DREs, that if everyone hasn't been trained to do this properly or has the expertise, the actual screening test or the screening process is completely useless. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's never there's never an answer that's going to please everyone with these sorts of wide ranging, large scale topics. Uh, but I think that the ultimate benefit has to be with the patients. And so if if you've got a methodology that is demonstrated to be more effective, have a lower false positive rate, a lower false negative rate, then that is something that you should aim to make available. Exactly. You should always protect the prostate. The results of this study was that about 1,818 men were monitored for a median of five years and there were 88 non-cancer related deaths and four 
prostate cancer-related deaths with one additional case of metastatic disease. The cumulative incidence of prostate cancer-specific mortality was less than 0.1% at both that 10 and 15-year follow-up mark, which is amazing. And of note, they found that biopsy-grade reclassification at was 21%, 30% and 32% at the 5, 10 and 15 year mark consecutively, which they associated with older age, African-American race, PSA density and increased cancer. So the conclusion to this study was that patients who were on non-active surveillance um, ended up switching across to treatment. And those who underwent the multi-parametric MRIs were less likely to experience repeat biopsy with grade reclassification during follow-up and also potentially lower treatment from that perspective. So I think my take-home message from this study is that MRIs would reduce the risk with the digital rectal exam as a conjunction. And this would reduce unnecessary treatment. Which, again, is fantastic and if we had an MRI scanner on every corner would be the obvious choice, but it's not something that is necessarily going to be practical. The other facet as well, which I think didn't really get uh, adequately addressed in the, uh, in the article is the patient perspective. It's actually something that was uh, very present in the comments um, of the article. It's not something that I normally look at, but uh, there were a lot of comments uh, relating to the patient experience. And again, it's very, very easy for us to sit here and say, your cancer has a 40 to 70% risk of maybe turning into something more invasive, but the patients then have to live with that. And I don't know about you, Josh, but if I had, uh, something that was maybe growing there, it would be a significant preoccupation, uh, and a significant stress and a drain on my mental health. And, so regardless, you are still going to get people, even if you're recommending against having quote unquote unnecessary surgery for these precancerous lesions, you are still going to have, and I think a lot of people are still going to push for having surgery because if you're telling the patients the truth, the main crux of the article was we need to change what we call cancer. That's main, that's um, contained in the headline. You know, we need to stop calling these things cancer and that is, that's a perfectly reasonable um, assumption to make, a perfectly reasonable position to hold. But at the same time, even if you're not calling them cancer, you do have to tell the patients that there is a chance, albeit a very small one, that they could develop into cancer because that's the truth. And so if you tell people that, the difference between having something that could be cancer in the future and the difference and something that is cancer right now is a subtlety that could be lost on a lot of people when all they hear is cancer. Regardless of what context you put it in, cancer is a very, very loaded word with a ton of connotations, most of them well-deserved. But if you're being honest with the patient, it's not a word that you can completely excise from your discussions about these precancerous lesions. Oh, how right you are, Michael. I, se I, I seem to say that a lot, but it, it's true, so I don't feel bad. 
But speaking of the comments to this article, it's quite interesting. And I think that was almost, to an extent, the more interesting part of this article. There was a pathologist who made a comment saying, we weren't included in this discussion and we look at all the slides. And they've highlighted facts about ductal carcinoma in situ and the recurrence rates. And other people talk about genetic testing. So I don't think the reclassification and this active surveillance is a black or white picture. When you take that Gleason score of six, you have ductal carcinoma in situ because medicine and oncology is moving towards precision medicine, where you're looking at people's genetic makeup. And maybe you have a Gleason of six, but you might have a P53 mutation, meaning that it's going to be more aggressive. So not all Gleason sixes are going to be equal, as well as not all ductal carcinoma in situ are going to be equal. And yes, when you look at it from the outset, they are both low risk. But here is my counter argument. If you look at the statistics for a grade one testicular pure seminoma, ridiculously good survival rates, but terrible surveillance and follow-up for patients who opt not for chemo. If we start reclassifying cancer as non-cancer or low malignant potential, people might then brush it aside as a non-issue not engage with their healthcare professionals as much. And it's a double-edged sword. I think it's more of a debate. And this is going to be an ongoing debate in oncology. The development means that things are not black and white. And another argument is maybe we should just engage a psychologist for everyone who has any cancer diagnosis and make that mandatory. Well, if uh, you think back to our episode with um, Ash Malala-Sakara and her uh, perspectives on cancer survivorship. That was something that really seemed to be beneficial. But really what you said, Josh, I think cuts to the crux of this uh, issue, which is that there is no such thing. And I, I say this to every medical student, every intern, every resident trainee that asks me, there is no such thing as always, and there is no such thing as never. You can apply that to any field of medicine or even life in general. And I guess our perspective compared to a more surgical perspective as presented in the article, you know, obviously they're the ones who are doing the operations, the procedures, they're the ones who see the immediate outcomes and would not dream about lecturing them on the surgical perspective. But as oncologists, we tend to see, as you said, uh, sort of in passing before Josh, we tend, we tend to see the bad outcomes. I don't know how much support uh, a more active surveillance approach would get uh, from the oncology side of things if we started to see more people presenting initially with a curable low tumor risk cancerous precancerous lesion that then through being lost to follow up or you know lack of resources those sorts of patients are the patients that will have a precancerous lesion go from that to a incurable metastatic malignancy. And from that perspective, the statistics start to become a little bit muddled and lost amidst all of the emotion. And that's something that is very, very difficult to separate. And I just wonder if, and, and I don't know how frequent that would be. All of the numbers say it would be very rare. 
But if you expand this sort of approach to a population basis, yes, you will have fewer surgeries and therefore have fewer surgical complications, radiological complications, radiotherapeutic complications, but does it improve long-term outcomes? And that's an answer that I don't think any, every, that's an answer that I don't think anyone actually has. And the, and I don't think that it's going to be a one size fits all. And we're sort of at a, at a bit of an in-between space here um, in, in the oncological field, Josh, where we know there's a significant potential for precision medicine. We know that driver mutations exist, but we don't know what they are or what to do with them. We don't know all of them at least. And so we're sort of in that conceptual phase where we know roughly how things work, but we don't know enough where uh, we can definitively say with only a very small chance of being wrong, yes, this is a precancerous lesion that is never going to cause you any problems. As I always seem to say, some people know what they know. Some people know what they don't know. And here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the world is your oyster when it comes to how far our specialty is going to go. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And we look forward to bringing you more of Fireside Chats with Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. I propose to sail ahead. I feel sure that your hopes, I feel sure that your help is with me. For to reach a port, we must sail. Sail, not lie at anchor. Sail, not drift.